Welcome back to another edition of the Bowrush Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Stowe, and you're listening to episode 38. Now, in this episode, we're actually splitting this up into two different episodes. So you're going to hear the first part in episode 38, and you'll have to stay tuned for the episode 39 to hear the rest of it. It was that long of a conversation, but it was that good of a conversation that we had to split it up. We had so many different questions, and the topic that we were covering was about Africa. The guy we brought on the day, his name is Aaron Nilsson. Now, we've already done an episode in this extreme month of August about hunting a lion in Africa. I think it was episode 36. So if you haven't heard it, definitely take a look and listen to that one because it was a solid show. You'll love it. But we're not going to take too much more of your time because this is a great episode. If you really want to understand what's going on in Africa and you want to have that foundation. So if you ever are in a situation where you need to start talking about what is going on so you can relay the message in a more effective way this episode is going to be for you i hope you enjoy it let's get it going hey aaron are you on the line you guys there hey, yeah, what's here. going on okay Very so basically i assume you guys are going to ask questions and then you know which would probably be best i mean but you guys do whatever you guys think is you know however you normally do it ask questions whatever you want to do and you know like i mentioned to scott i don't think i'll have much problem talking i kind of got a big mouth so no uh, hopefully we can get you guys the information you're looking for yeah, well, just to kind of recap, me and you talked a little bit about this, and just for uh, any of the new listeners, our, our current listeners know what we're about, but for those new people just listening for the first time, um, me and Travis, we want to reach out. We've, we've had the privilege of meeting people in, in this industry, uh, you know, all over the U.S. that really have experiences that we don't have and we've never had the opportunity to have, and we're by no means experts. So we want to bring people on, uh, like Aaron, who we have today, uh, who you know is is an expert whether he'll claim it or not you know he has the knowledge base to really give a great insight into a type of hunting that we're going to talk about that we're doing the series on and really bring you guys up to speed on what happens in in the industry so again we want to bring you guys people like aaron um in all aspects of, of hunting in the hunting industry that'll help you guys grow in your experience and, and grow in your hunting and become better more efficient hunters so uh with that uh aaron how are hey, you doing man. today i'm doing good man how are you guys <laughs> man we're doing great good it's good thanks excited for having to, me. oh yeah absolutely we're excited to have you on we're thrilled thrilled to uh to get someone with your your knowledge base in in the series that we're talking about on uh which is expedition and those adventure hunts all right great you have your hand, it seems, like, you know, watching videos that, that you sent to us and some other stuff that I've seen out there. You have your hand in, in about every kind of adventure hunt that you can do in, in North America and really on every continent out there. In Africa, that's one that we're kind of really diving into because it's something that, A, it's a hot topic, and B, even hunters who are on board with it may not know the facts behind the conservation efforts that go on over there. And again, something kind of seems like you have all in all knowledge in the world about in layman's terms how does the conservation over there that the acts that are going on and the government how does that really help conservation what's the benefit how can we as hunters project that better well listen man i think the first thing that people have to realize about africa in general is you know first of all it's a continent it's not a country you know there's there's 54 sovereign countries on the continent of africa and a lot of people confuse you know that just in itself they think south africa just uh you know just uh, just means africa in general and that, and that's certainly not the case 
Um, but I think the biggest thing that people here, and let's call it the modern Western world, don't understand about Africa is that it is a third world country. And thus it lives by third world rules. And so, you know, when you take that into consideration, they don't, they don't even look at conservation from the same aspect that we do all the time, because oftentimes a lot of the people, especially in the rural parts of Africa, you know, dude, their, their job is just simply to live and survive. You know, they're worried about what they're going to eat today and how they're going to survive tomorrow. You know, unlike us that, you know, we're worried about what time, you know, the bachelorette comes on tonight. And uh, which my girlfriend will be watching and I, so. uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully I, I, I hope you guys get that point. I mean, I think that so many people here in the United States and Europe where you see even more of the anti hunting sentiment, you know, th- th- you're, you're trying to cast first world feelings and and, you know, life experiences onto people that live in a third world country or a third world continent where, you know, things are completely different there. So, you know, you can't, you, you can't try to just take your aspect of life and put it onto them and expect them to do as we do. But that's exactly what, you know, this anti-hunting, non-hunting world is trying to do with Africa in particular. You would think in the sense, us being living in the United States in this area, we live in a society that has the, I guess you would say the new Pokemon Go, so to speak, the app and our most predator that we live in, we're, we're the top of the, the food chain. And so we're technically the predators of all the other animals in this area. But in like Africa, they live on a day-to-day basis where they're not the top of the food chain. They're the ones being where they have to wonder if they're going to survive the next day just because there's so many predators out there and they're technically the food. Well, I mean, listen, you know, it, in all honesty, I mean, man will always reign supreme. And, and even in Africa, that holds true. And that's really part of the big problem is that when you talk about, you know, let's look at a country like Tanzania, where I hold a full professional hunter's license myself, one of the few Americans that have ever done that. You know, their current population is about 40 million people. It's expected to double in the next 20 years. And, you know, it has a, it has a plethora of wildlife, probably one of the strongest, last strongholds of, of wildlife on the continent, you know, true wild areas. But those people, as they continue to grow in numbers, they have to go somewhere, man. And, you know, the lion and the hyena and even the predators that are in the way, I assure you, they lose that battle every single time. You know, they're cutting down trees for firewood. They're they're turning up dirt to try to plant crops. Of course, they're bringing in cattle. Uh, they're bringing in goats. And as those things come in, you know, a lion looks at that and says, well, let me see. I can run around here in the on the savanna and chase these gazelles that run 100 miles an hour. Or I can walk over here and jump on top of this cow pretty easy i mean they're you know they're going to take the path of least resistance no different than we do and then when that happens of course you know the locals the natives they're upset you know the lions are killing their you know their livestock first thing they do is poison them and the poison they use there is very very effective and you know so inevitably you know the 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 animals the wildlife loses you know the habitat destruction is gone and then of course you know when the when the game leaves you know, call it the, the antelope and the prey species. When they're gone, the predators are gone too. And so, unfortunately, you know the you know the the Western world brought to Africa its its modernization. 
But what they also brought, and I guess you can look at it whether you want to consider it fortunate or unfortunate, what the, what the, what the modern world also brought was modern medicine. And that, has, that is what has allowed the, the human population on the continent of Africa to explode over the last 50 years. And, and as that happens, you know, they're no longer dying from malaria, you know, near like they were before and, and some of the other diseases that always kind of, you know, Mother Nature kept the people and the species kind of in, in check. In well, check. you know, man has altered that now. Uh, you know, modern man has. And so, look, man, as, as the number of people there grows, unfortunately, they've got to go somewhere and the wildlife ends up being the loser. They don't have the same sort of control that we have here on our wild lands and that sort of thing. That just doesn't happen there. Well, you know, I'm not one to get in any kind of any kind of deep conversation or, or argument over conservation in, in Africa because I don't know enough. I know enough to get my point across that I'm a hunter and I believe in it and the conservation helps. But the thing I've always run up run up against in open dialogue with anti-hunters or just someone who just isn't really in favor of it or doesn't understand it is well guys go over there trophy hunt kill an animal and there's nothing that's given back to the to the community that's it's basically they're going out there spending money to just kill something and move on the conservation side of that what actually happens with the the money and efforts that go into into a, a trophy hunt over in africa well, listen, let me say this, and this might be long-winded, but I want you guys to keep this in mind. You know, I have I have spent over a 1,000 days hunting on the continent of Africa uh, in, wow. in, in eight different countries. I promise you I've spent darn near as much time there as, as anybody ever could. And the fact of what you just said is, frankly, you know, with all the experience that I also have here in North America, it would be just the opposite. When you and I go elk hunting here, for example, in the mountains of Colorado where I live. I assure you a lot less of what we do on that five or seven day hunt transfers back into conservation of the wildlife and the habitat versus a safari in wild Africa. Um, you know, listen, many of the local people there, when I, when I go elk hunting here, I'm going for fun. I'm not hiring the locals. Uh, you know, certainly I might, uh, you know, I might visit a hotel or a, or a restaurant or something like that. But, you know, not near as much of my time, effort and money is focused on the locals and what's given back to them in the course of my hunting here versus what happens there. When I go to Africa, I mean, you know, the locals are employed by the outfitters, you know, all the way from skinners, trackers, uh, cooks, uh, uh, you know, tent boys. Um, you know, you name it, uh, they're employed. The outfitters in these areas are donating money to the local schools to put in water holes and water pumps. Um, you know, they're the ones that are paying. And I've seen all this with my own two eyes. I've experienced it. Look, I've been shot at there. I've, I've chased down groups of poachers. I mean, you name it, I've done it. And the only ones that are paying for the anti-poaching patrols are the outfitters. And where do you think that money comes from? They're not just pulling it out of the ground. They're getting that money from guys like me when I go there and go hunting. And so for people to say that we're just simply going there to trophy hunt and nothing comes out of it for the locals or the wildlife, I cannot even begin to tell you how much more benefit on the ground the locals and the wildlife are getting there versus what even is happening here when you and I go 
deer and elk hunting, I promise you it's night and day. I mean, look, take, take for example, if you shoot an elephant, which I've shot numerous elephants. It is a all-out war for the locals to get there and get their piece of the meat because obviously they have very little opportunity to get protein, to get meat. So when something like an elephant hits the ground, my friend, it, it, it literally can, you, you better get out of the way because you're going to get hit in the head with an axe. And it's going to be by the, the 80-year-old granny who's trying to get her you know, her share of the meat. So uh, I assure you, you, you will never see a place where not only the, the wildlife that's taken is utilized more, but the money that is spent is utilized better both in terms of habitat protection, conservation, and of course, you know, a lot of people here want to jump on this new, you know, we all kill what we eat meat train. My friends, I assure you, uh, guys, the stuff that they will eat there, you and I wouldn't even think of eating here off of the animals. So believe you me, yeah, when they, look, when they're, when they're, when they're gutting an animal, you know, I mean, one of their favorite things is the entire stomach lining, for example, and, you know, things like that, things that you and I would look at and go, oh, my Lord, uh, you know, these guys can't wait to get. So it's a uh, delicacy. It, it is. I mean, you know, well, really wow. what it is, it's just it's an opportunity to eat, man. I mean, if, if they're not getting meat, the only mainstays they have is is, uh, you know, basically like an oatmeal, like a porridge type of food. Uh, uh, mealy meal, you know, is basically what it is. And so, you know, they're eating that. It's, you know, rice and different things. Otherwise, you know, when they get the opportunity to get, you know, get a piece of meat, get some protein, it's a big deal for those guys. Thinking about the, the meal and everything that they get, what is the deciding factor? Because obviously if you're going out and you're going for a lion or an elephant or a different species within Africa, what factors does uh, the the guide um the outfitter itself decide on there's a that particular type of animal he's the right one and this is why we're doing it like what do they usually put into play to make that decision i mean i think a lot of that depends on the client of course who's with the uh you know with the particular guide but in most cases you know those guys are no different than we are here nowadays i mean you can call it trophy hunting if you will but the fact is, you know, the majority of them are just as keen as we are to harvest, uh, you know, older age class, mature animals. You know, in particular with lions. I mean, lions has become such a touchy subject in the last few years that, uh, you know, not only the countries themselves with their wildlife departments, but of course, a lot of the, you know, professional hunters and outfitters in these different countries that are still hunting wild lions have been very, very conservative in their take of lion, and they try to ensure that that lion is at least a six-year-old or a seven-year-old plus lion, and they go to great lengths to try to ensure that. You know, listen, I, I will say that there is no guarantees. It is still field judging of a wild animal, but it's not like it was 10 years ago where they would just shoot a lion. Nowadays, they're very particular and very careful about what they do, and I will admit that Certainly, you know, some of the scrutiny that has been brought upon, you know, the lion hunting world has, has, has added to that. But the fact is, you know, in the last six, seven, eight years, we've only learned the science as the scientists, you know, have given us the science, have told us, you know, us hunters too, you know, what lions are best to take, so on and so forth. So we're learning just as everybody else is learning. And I can tell you without any question, these guys have done a fabulous job of trying to follow that and thus you know, doing a better job of conservation-minded hunting, not just sport trophy hunting. Okay. Well, well, the scientists you're going, you talk about them a little bit. 
there's a foundation that you co-founded and that worked specifically with scientists to develop a conservation plan, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, myself and uh, a good friend of mine from Texas, um, we co-founded the Lion Conservation Task Force. And uh, what we did is we reached out. Look, you know, lion hunting has really been African lion hunting has been my passion for 20 years. I have I have personally shot 15 lions. Um, you know, I, I, I love hunting lions and I love the lion. And, you know, we obviously saw a great need to try to bring uh, Dr. Lane Easter, by the way, is the man that I co-founded the uh, uh, Lion Conservation Task Force with. But we brought together about five or six of the world's absolute leading experts in the field of African lions and African lion hunting. They were all scientists. They're all non-hunters. Uh, they all have a monstrous amount of experience across the continent of Africa with the African lion. And together, we formulated what we called the huntable lion definition. And it was basically a, uh, you know, just a definition, a guideline, if you will, of, of, you know, what lions are acceptable to take under what circumstances and how you can do it. It's by no means a law. It wasn't meant to be a law necessarily in any of these countries, but it was a guideline. And it was adopted by Dallas Safari Club and, and hundreds of, honestly, hundreds of outfitters and PHs and uh, booking agents around the world. It's been adopted by, by lots of people. All the PHs as well use it uh, in Africa and is something I'm very proud of. But, um, you know, basically it was, it was brought upon because we felt like we needed to not only educate the public but continue to educate ourselves. We don't know what we don't know until we know we don't know it. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so, you know, once the scientists started showing us some of these things, and I can tell you when I first started hunting lions 20 years ago, you know, the age or the characteristics of lions, you know, trying to, that wasn't thought of. It was like, well, that's a nice looking lion. Let's shoot him. And, and that's the way it went. But it's much different now. So, you know, for people that, you know, that's really the unfortunate thing about it is that the, you know, the, the world, if you will, doesn't see, you know, the great strides that we've really made in terms of trying to be conservation-minded lion hunters, for example, and yet, you know, you know, we continue to get crucified for it, but, I mean, you guys know how it is. I mean, you try to do the best you can, but it doesn't always, you know, the message doesn't always get out there to everybody, and in fact, and you guys know, sometimes people don't want to hear the message. True. Yeah, absolutely. If you're, if you're trying to beat up a brick wall, sometimes it just it won't budge. That's right. That's right. You know, thinking of the the conservation side of it and the efforts that you have been putting over, let's say, the last 20 years, looking at where the lion population or any other particular animal and the efforts from like preventing po or poaching. Now, has the conservation efforts help improve the lifestyle and the growth of these animals? Well, here's the fact. If it wasn't for the continued conservation that's going on there now, as places have been diminished that I have even experienced over the last 20 years, meaning when I say diminished, you know, wildlife populations have virtually been wiped out in places of Africa where, you know, the human encroachment has continued to take over. And so in answering your question, the, the answer is yes, but the only reason being is because, you know, we as hunters continue to, to go there. We continue to pay money for these things, both in terms to the outfitter and in terms to the, the, the wildlife departments of these countries for licenses, trophy fees, that sort of thing. And honestly, that funding from both of those angles is the only thing that's keeping 
the people at bay. As soon as that goes away, and we can go back to countries like Tanzania again with all of their you know game reserves and, and, and that sort of thing that they have. I mean, those game reserves in Tanzania are 100% solely supported by hunting. And they are huge, vast tracts of, of wild, incredible territory where, guys, you will see game and see things you could never imagine. But the truth is... There is no other funding from outside sources. There's no anti-hunting groups. There's no, you know, uh, fun for animals and all these goofballs that we hear about that are saving all the wildlife. My friend, they are not there. They never have been there and they never will be there. And I can tell you because I've been there many times. The only people that are protecting those places are the hunters and that money comes from their pocket. And as soon as they leave, and that's the problem with Africa, as we continue to get pushed out further and pushed you know, more to the wayside and hunting continues to lose this battle, I promise you guys, you know, right now, Africa is sinking like the Titanic. And if we can't change people's minds in these countries, the wildlife that they all think they're protecting are going to be gone. And here's what I tell them. And I say, what you're doing is you're saving them to death. And until you stop and until you come there and experience it for yourself, until you come there and let me show you what's going on, you're going to continue to rail against the very thing that you're expecting, that you're not wanting. You're going to continue to rail against the only asset or the only friend that the wildlife and the habitat really has, as I am telling you, is hunting. So basically, in some way, you can almost imagine as the anti-hunters and the people that are just completely against it, they're doing more harm than the actual hunters themselves. Travis, it's not even a close question. <laughs> I, I assure you. And and listen, and I don't think that uh, I don't think the vast majority of them would obviously have that intent in mind. But I- until they come and experience it, I don't think they truly believe that. You know, they think what they're doing is good, and they're and we all know that you know the anti-hunting sentiment is all based on emotion. It's not based on rationale. It's not based on science. It's not based on fact. It's just an emotional decision. And so they see you know Pumbaa getting shot, and they see Simba getting shot, and you know, and and uh, uh, you know, it Cecil the lion. I mean, you know, I, I asked a bunch of my buddies in Zim. I got a bunch of PH buddies in Zim. I said, any of you guys know Cecil? They were like, what the hell are you talking about, Cecil? Who's Cecil? <laughs> they were like, you mean you mean one of those lions that got shot out of the park? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not Cecil. It's a lion. And that's the problem. We have added this human sentiment to wild animals, and we've, you know, we've afforded them the same, you know, the same human emotion that we give to our friends, family, children, and, and guys, as far as wildlife management goes, it is a horrible, horrible route to go down, and unfortunately, the wildlife there is suffering for it, and they're going to continue as long as we keep doing this. So, anti-hunting, you know, obviously, their their goal is to shut down something. They, they pick some kind of source that they think is causing damage and they want to shut it down what is something that anti-hunters have successfully shut down over there or are trying to get shut down that is going to have a negative impact what's that going to do if you take whatever that thing they're trying to shut down is away let me say it to you this way i mean you know you you can look at it as anti-hunters or just non-hunters or wildlife lovers in particular okay you can (laughs) you can whatever whatever group you want to put them into but 
you know, look, very simply, let's use, I mean, is there any better example uh, in history on the continent of Africa than Kenya? You know, in the 1970s, you know, look back in the, you know, Kenya and Tanzania were the, you know, gold standard of, of you know, East African safari hunting or African safari hunting in general. And in the late 70s, Kenya was closed to all hunting hmm. by anti-hunters, okay, by anti-hunters, by non-hunters. It was closed entirely, and it never has reopened. To this day, they have lost about 75% of their original wildlife after the hunting was closed. Now, if hunting was the problem, why then did the wildlife populations across the country of Kenya tank? uh, Influx of herd populations probably overtaking others and then probably destroying the the strongest. Honestly, the absolute, absolute opposite. Once the hunters left... Again, when you have <clears throat> when you have the indigenous people that live there, everything in a third world country has to have value, or it's an or it's a, a it's a problem. Mm-hmm. The wildlife in Kenya prior to the hunting closure was valuable to them because hunters and such were coming to hunt these big elephants and so on and so forth. You know, buffalo go on down the list. Well, once that money was no longer coming. You know, that lion or that elephant that's coming in and squashing their crops, my friend, he's no longer an asset. He's a problem. Uh-huh. So the, the, the wildlife in Kenya was poached to a huge level after the hunting was closed because, you know, the locals there were like, well, if we don't have a reason to protect them, let's eat them. Let's kill them. Let's get rid of them. They're just, a, I mean, you know, the, the, the biggest shame about the predators there is, you know, predators aren't used for food. You know, they're not much good to a, they're not much good to a, a villager. You know, a lion, the only thing he sees a lion as is either something that might kill him or might eat one of his cows. Hmm. He has no reason to protect that thing or offer it any sort of, uh, you know, refuge unless he thinks there's a reason that he might get something from it down the road. Well, when you take that incentive away, and, and, and anytime you take incentive in a third world country away, if something doesn't have value, it's got no reason to be there. It's either got to pay for itself or it's got to go. That's the way they look at it. See, that's that right there shows the, the key reasons. Like I was thinking, it was the same situation we have here when we have hunters or we lose the ability to hunt deer and then it gets overpopulated. Deer starts you know dying on the side of the road because they're so overpopulated. They're running in the streets. They're getting hit by cars. And then there's also the disease aspect that just because there's too, there's not enough managing that they now create these diseases that wipe them out. Uh, that was my initial thought that that's how it was happening over there, but never even thought that it's just because they were a nuisance, they get rid of them. No, listen, I mean, uh, here, you know, here in the U.S., you know, we abide by, you know, game laws and we're not poachers and we're also not, you know, you and I, listen, people can say what they want. I have a, a, a bit of an issue with this, you know, this new, you know, we all hunt for food type of thing. I mean... Listen, guys, I know a lot of hunters. I don't know anybody that's not eating dinner tonight because they didn't kill something. Okay, yeah, so we don't we don't have that that necessity to kill uh, to, to, to sustain ourselves. So, you know, that and the fact that we're law abiding citizens here, generally speaking, your theory here in the United States is exactly what would happen. But there where 
you know, they're not concerned about poaching animals. And, you know, if I can kill this elephant or this whatever it might be and eat it, you know, my family and so on and so forth. And as, you know, they continue to grow and the population grows and, you know, man, it's a totally different thing there. So when you eliminate the ability for an animal there to have value to them, my friend, the first thing they want to do is kill it. They want to eat it or get rid of it because it's a problem. It's just that simple. Wow. So, Again, coming back to the people that are either anti-hunters or don't like hunting, we know how they feel. We know how hunters feel. And you kind of answered a little bit as far as the indigenous population in Africa, but what's the general consensus? You spent a lot of time over there. Conversation, if you had conversations with you know people from the villages you've hunted in, what's their attitude towards it? How do they view everything? Well, listen, it's a lot like it is here in the States to a degree, guys. I mean, when you guys get into, you know, you get into the major, you know, metropolitan, you know, metropolis cities, if you will, there's a lot more liberal sentiment, a lot more anti-everything sentiment. And the same holds true in Africa. I mean, if you go into, you know, downtown Johannesburg, you know, a lot of people might might not really care for it. But when you get into rural Africa, everybody, and I mean everybody, is supportive of the hunting because it brings so much prosperity to their community. You know, like I said before, jobs, food, schools, even churches, you know, water, you know, uh, uh, all that stuff is brought you know, by the, the, the dollars that are generated from hunting. And listen, I won't sit here and tell you that it supports everything and everyone. That's the, Obviously, it does not. But, you know, if you have a community that 25 or 35 percent of its, of its sustainability is derived from one, you know, one entity, and all of a sudden you take that away, you know, you lose 20 or 30 or 40 percent of your income, that's a big deal. Well, that's actually a, a good question to bring up as in how many in a given year, how many lions are unestimately taken either not only by hunters they pay to go and hunt versus poaching versus just generally killing them because of nuisance, the total sum of lions taken and the amount of hunters actually paying to go hunt? Well, <clears throat> yeah, it's not a question I could answer totally accurately i could give you some guesstimates okay okay uh, listen as far as guesstimates go on the number of lions lions being poached uh, there's no way to know that I mean, there's just absolutely no way but let me let me give you three examples of way lions are killed by man they're either they're either hunted by us you know sport hunters um they are either poisoned uh, or or in some way poached by poachers or in, in a lot of cases, too, you, know, you take Botswana, for example. Look, I shot the very last legal lion ever killed in Botswana in, in September of 2007. Probably will wow. be the last legal lion that will ever be killed there. But oh. they still consistently kill. Uh, I'm trying to remember the number. I think they're still, and when I say they, the, the game department is still killing close to, I think close to 80 or 90 lions a year as nuisance problem lions. You know, they're getting calls from all the local villagers. You know, they're raiding cattle. They're doing this, that, the other. They're, they're, yeah, they're killing close to, close to 100 lions a year. And tell me what benefit is that giving anybody? Yeah, that's where it brings my point is like if they took away 
the ability for a hunter to pay for that type of hunt where it brings in some sort of income for the, the, the area and then it completely removed it and yet they're still doing it. It's almost like dumbfounded that they would even consider removing it in the first place because that's all revenue completely gone. And then on the top of that, the experience, the meat, the bring on the longevity of other people to do it as well. It, it You know what it reminds me of, guys, is it reminds me of you know, the typical government bureaucracy mentality. It's just, you know, the, the, the dumber the decision, the more likely it was made by the government, you know? It, well, it, yeah, you're, you're right. It really is. Look, in Botswana, when, when, when lion hunting closed in Botswana, they were, they were as strict there with their hunting of lions as any place has ever been. They were only issuing one tag a year, per hunting block and those lion hunts in 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 botswana were selling for between 90 and 140 thousand dollars a piece wow so think and and so legally they were only shooting i think 20 20 some lions 22 24 lions a year but guys that's roughly you know that's roughly two million dollars in gross uh income and instead now they're still killing you know dozens and dozens of lions a year and nobody is benefiting from it at all. Yeah. Why did they, why do they legal or why they illegal, make it illegal to kill in Botswana? Well, look, Botswana closed all hunting down, and that's because Botswana is the richest Southern African country, uh, smallest population, and and wealthiest country in Southern Africa. The president of of Botswana is a man named Ian Kama. And he is uh, anti-hunting and partially because he is well-connected with the largest uh, photographic safari operator on the entire continent of Africa. And so going in, I I think their main intention was to shut down the Okavango Delta from hunting so they could take over those areas and add more photographic uh, in there. I mean, the Okavango Delta is, is, is one of the most spectacular places on planet Earth. But what they have done by doing that is there's still tons of areas that are outside the Delta all across the northern part of the country of Botswana that are the ugliest moonscape that you've ever seen. That no, no photographic person would ever go to in the history of life, but they are full of game. Elephants, buffalo, lion, you know, go on down the list. I mean, there's lots of game in these areas, but, you know, the entire, the entire country was shut down because of anti-hunting, 100% because of anti-hunting sentiment. And now, uh, you know, the wildlife's suffering, the locals are suffering, and uh, uh, certainly, you know, the, the only people that are making any money off of it are the ones that, that wanted it in the first place. But nothing else is benefiting, certainly not the locals or the wildlife. I wonder if by removing the ability for hunters, by removing the ability to take on these type of aspects, how I wonder if there's any way to go back like, because it's been so long and they've made such a major change, can it be reversed? Well, sure it can. I mean, listen, you know, those areas are, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're not changing in terms of, you know, geographics and that sort of thing. And the fact is that, you know, in a lot of these areas that we're talking about that are hunting blocks, okay, whether it be in Botswana where they used to have or, you know, in what Tanzania still has, you know, here's the biggest misconception about the photographic uh Element. opportunity or, or or alternate opportunity if you will people you know i hear the argument all the time when in terms of africa when they say you know what you need to do is shut down the hunting and just turn all those areas into photographic areas and then it will be a you know a, a, a renewable sustainable resource you know that's always there you know non-consumptive resource if you will 
And I said, the only reason, the only reason that you say that is because you've never been there. My friends, when you go to some of these rural, wild, I mean, truly wild places in Tanzania, for example, these game reserves, it is so rough and rugged and nasty and hot and miserable in these places. I don't know if you guys know what a tetsi fly is, but it's a mosquito on steroids. And they are, these places are infested with them. The first time that, uh, you know, a husband and wife and his 2.4 kids from, you know, from Chicago <laughs> needed to load up in the, in the minivan and take a 16-hour ride to get there on a nasty dirt road and got out and the wife got swarmed with about 200 uh, tetsi flies. My friend, I assure you, in about three minutes, she's going to tell her husband, we need to get the heck out of here. <laughs> well, that, that, that's where and it, we jump into the conversation we just had a second ago. Government decisions don't always make a ton of sense. It's usually a dumb idea. Uh, and maybe I'm ignorant to this, but I don't see how a photographic area can bring in the same kind of revenue that hunting can. I mean, you're talking about a lion hunt being ninety dollars to $140,000 for a single tag. How many photographic tours would you have to do in a, in a year to come to that same total to fund the same revenue well and especially in when you consider you know look an area in again let's go back to tanzania you know some of the game reserves they're getting you know several lions on quota a year and 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 routinely lion hunts in tanzania are going for 80 to 100 grand a piece okay um so yes your point right there is well taken the second point is you know, think about think about it in terms of this. So you've got you know you've got six you know uh, uh, photographic operators uh, you know in the Serengeti, for example, and let's say they're you know they're limited, obviously, to a degree. Well, if all of a sudden you open fifty more, does that mean that fifty times more people are going to come? I mean, no. no. I mean, you know, there's there you still have to abide by supply and demand. I mean, there's only so many people that want to go do photographic safaris. So just to go across the entire eastern and southern end of the continent and open up 200, you know, more photographic safari companies doesn't mean that they're going to be profitable or, or you know, whatever you want to call it, profitable, just work, period. They're, they're, they're just not going to. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not the case of, you know, build it and they will come. <laughs> <laughs> so talking to the listeners what is the over over sounding theme what's something you can tell them to help them better understand how to present conservation if they ever find themselves in in that facebook conversation or the face-to-face conversation with an with an anti-hunter or someone who just doesn't like hunting well i mean listen i will say this i think it's difficult to to portray something to somebody that i think that's the biggest reason why we're having so much trouble is you really are trying to portray to somebody else, you know, something that's more of a, a sentiment, a feeling, uh, an emotion that we have as hunters. I mean, uh, you, you know, instinctually, we all are predators. We always have been as man. And some of us, I believe, have a much stronger urge or sense of that instinct than do others. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, that's, I really do. I really think that, uh, you know, some of us, you know, really, really have that, you know, that in us when we all know that it's not a necessity to survive, you know, like it was, you know, hundreds of years ago. But just because time moves on doesn't mean that your instincts are are simply that easily bred out of people. But with that said, I think that first and foremost, 
you know, that uh, until you experience something, it's hard to understand it. You know, mm-hmm. so if you haven't been to Africa, you know, trying to portray to people what it is and, 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 and the benefits of it is difficult. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, you, you just need to try to get across the point to people that, especially in third world countries, you know, it's very simple. If it pays, it stays. If it doesn't, it's 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 going to be gone. You know, the fact is that despite whether or not what your personal feelings or emotions are about the killing of an animal, if you don't understand the necessity behind the the conservation of it, you're really doing much more harm to what you say you love than good. And unfortunately, I think, guys, that... That's the real disconnect is, you know, we can sit here and talk about it and your listeners are going to understand what I'm saying for the most part. But if we took this before a group of anti-hunters, I I, I just I I see it so many times. I mean, they just it's like Republicans and Democrats. I mean, you know, I don't understand how a person can be a Democrat, but obviously they have a mindset. You know, I I could never get it. You, You could never convince me of it. But obviously they do. So. I, I think, unfortunately, to a large degree, we're fighting a, a, a battle of, you know, like Travis said earlier, you know, you're just beating your head on a wall. Yeah. Well, you know, we talked a lot about conservation so far um, and lions specifically. There's a lot of other stuff you've done. You have a um, is it a is it a web series or is it actually on TV uh, Vision Quest? Well, I, listen, I, I, I do both. I mean, I've got a, I've got a TV show uh, on the Sportsman channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Trigicon's World of Sports Afield. Uh, airs every Saturday night uh, on the Big Shot Block on third and fourth quarter. It airs every Saturday night at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Been doing that for a number of years. And then just recently, yeah, we've started a new online uh, series called Vision Quest. And that's just an opportunity to you know, bring more of our video content to a wider audience, if you will. I mean, the Sportsman's Channel is fabulous. You know, love being there. But the fact is that, uh, you know, unless you subscribe to the Sportsman channel, you know, you're never going to get to see the content, certainly not if you live in another country. So, uh, you know, really wanted to try to, to, to use the, uh, you know, the online platform, you know, just simply to be able to bring our content to more viewers around the world. I think it's smart. I mean, for years, I, I cut the cable years ago. And it was if it wasn't on Hulu or if it wasn't Netflix, uh, I didn't see it. And that, the negative part about that is that I lost all hunting channels. And so it ended up being that I had to either be at a friend's house to watch a show or just happen to see it on YouTube. So merging things onto the web has been the best decision I think any hunting show has ever done because it just allows us, like myself, access to shows that just you normally couldn't get to um, until they started moving things on, which is great. Well, that's right. And, and you know, what I, what I would often get from – uh, you know, because I do a lot of international hunting, I would get from guys emails and stuff and say, hey, man, would love to see your stuff here in Australia, you know, or or uh, honestly in Africa or, you know, Europe, I would get emails. And, of course, you know, they don't have the Sportsman channel there in any of those places. So this is the reason we start. And it's just brand new. We've just started it. We're just starting to develop it. You know, obviously, there's going to be some bumps in the road, and we're going to work on it. But you know, we we have a YouTube channel for it, and you know, we're going to continue to try to develop it into a uh, into a consistent series that you know we have our stuff online. So that way, you know, whether you're at lunch, 
you know, on your lunch break or it doesn't matter where you're at, you know, you can, you can, you know, pop it up and watch it. And the fact is people always want content. They're always going to want to see the stuff. I think that just people are starting to move away just as you guys have, and especially your generation, you know, the younger folks, I mean, are moving away from, you know, sitting down and watching the boob tube. You know, versus, you know, tablets, smartphones, that sort of thing. I want on-demand, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because you do a lot of the uh, the hunts in internationally, for someone like myself or someone that's even ever wanting to think about that as a future hunt, uh, an expedition, a, a bucket list, going in that route, there are guides, there are uh, the services that you can actually hire to handle all these aspects. What do people, like myself, what would be the first thing someone should do to take the first step, even consider doing a hunt like that? Well, listen, I mean, you kind of, uh, and I don't know if you know this, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bait, I didn't bait you into that question. Let's make sure everybody knows that. <laughs> no. <laughs> so so the, the fact is, you know, my, my main business is uh, I'm an international booking agent, and I think that's the word you were looking for. Yeah. You know, I mean, I run a, a, you know, an international hunting consulting service. So, uh, you know, one of the first things I would suggest people to do is, first of all, you got to have an idea of what you want to do. You know, don't you're not just going to call up somebody like me and say, well, I thought about going hunting around the world, but I have no idea what or where. You're going to know that you want to go to Africa or you want to hunt a you know, a buffalo, or maybe you want to go to New Zealand and hunt a stag. And so you're going to know that stuff. But then you're going to call somebody like me that, you know, I have spent the last 25 years traveling around the world, you know, hunting all of these places. And, you know, you you want to rely on somebody that has that personal knowledge and experience on the ground to be able to not only set you up with reputable people, but of course, you know, hold your hand, if you will, for lack of a better word, through, you know, gun permits and travel and all that stuff to a place that maybe you've never been. And, you know, I'm certainly not the only guy out there that does that. But that, whether it was with me or with somebody like me, that's what I would suggest that hunters do. That way you're getting, you know, you're getting somebody that really has the experience that can, you know, help you sidestep the landmines that you might step upon had you not known, known otherwise. Now, how does that work in general? Let's say if I wanted to go there, is every hunt a a wild hunt? I mean, does that is that the best way to expect it, or is there different things to expect? I know, like in different other countries, they might have high fences depending on the animal you're going for. Is that something that someone should be aware of, or even think about asking before they just say, "I just want to go hunt a lion"? Like, do they need to know certain things to ask? You bet. That's a that's a that's a really good question. Certainly, there are places around the world where, you know, some of the game that you're going to hunt are traditionally high fenced. You know, listen, and again, we've, we've been on Africa, so I'll, I'll go back to that. You know, the vast majority of the lions that, that you guys have probably seen, that you'll see on Facebook, certainly that I've seen other of the TV people in the last five years, a bunch of them shooting. Yeah, those are high fence canned lions in South Africa. Okay. The difference between that and going to Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Zambia, Tanzania, you know, even Botswana, where I, you know, shot that line a few, all those are truly wild, free ranging lions. No different than the elk or wild, free ranging here in the mountains of Colorado. And that's part of the reason why you see such a price discrepancy. You know, these canned lions are, you know, twenty, twenty five thousand dollars you know, and wild lions are a hundred thousand dollars. 
you know, there's a huge difference. But that in itself, you know, your question is is absolutely something that people should be aware of. The same will happen if you go to a lot of the stags that you guys see shot in New Zealand, especially the really big stags. Those are all, all of them are high fence stags. Now they put them in, you know, they roam freely within a big hunting block, you know, a two, three, four, five, six thousand acre hunting block, but they are not wild, free ranging stags. They do have some there, but oftentimes those really big ones, or almost virtually all the time, those really big ones are are not such. So yeah, it's definitely you know questions you need to ask. Obviously, if you're looking at something like a a brown bear hunt on Kodiak, well, they're not high fencing brown bears on Kodiak, so you know you don't <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. But some of the other countries around the world, you know, look even a lot lately, a lot of the desert sheep and the big mule deer you're seeing coming out of Sonora, not all of them guys, but you know at a much greater rate than it was ten years ago, are those things now under high fence? And you know, so it's just something that people, if they're looking. Yeah, they should definitely be aware of. I have nothing against it. I just no. think that it, I have no, nothing against it at all. I just think that it should be, you know, it should be the hunter's choice to make sure he he knows what he's getting himself into. So, yeah, I think it's a good question to ask. That way you're, you know, you're making a decision based on all the facts. Well, like in the same situation, some of the things that when I was younger, I I never had the thought, I, if I thought I was going to do any type of hunt, I would never do a high fence hunt. But then again, that was just me not understanding high fence hunts doesn't necessarily mean that they're just hide or keeping these animals enclosed it's also to help keep other animals out to help protect them is that not correct well yeah listen i mean that's that's true i mean it, you know depending on where you're at you know the, the the reasons for that will vary i mean the truth is uh, again going back to africa a, a big part of the reason that the animals are high fenced there is not to keep the animals in but it's to keep the people out poachers that's right. Yeah. That's right. So even thinking what, of a high fence, it's not necessarily a negative. It's just a, a form of way to protect them. Listen, I'll tell you this. I will guarantee you this. I would stake my life on it that in the next 20 years, 30 years in particular, any pl- other than a few of the really big national parks uh, across the continent of Africa, the only wildlife that's going to really be left in any sustainable numbers is going to be private game reserves that whether they're hunting or non-hunting isn't the issue, but high-fenced private game reserves is going to be the only last stronghold of African wildlife you can count on. It. Wow! And so, so then that well, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, but no, no, no. what I was going to say is, you know, so because of that, I mean, yes, I, I don't look at them strictly from a negative standpoint. I mean, they definitely have a a huge benefit. Uh, certainly in circumstances like what they're facing in Africa. You know, just to jump into that a little bit, because obviously poaching seems to be a huge, huge, huge issue over there that conservation and money towards that is going to battle. You know, you you stated earlier that you've been shot at, you've chased after yep. poachers. Yep. What's, some of, what's some of your run-ins with them? You know, how did you find yourself in that position? And what'd you do? Well, listen, I mean, obviously I'm always with... Uh, uh, you know, always with my, you know, professional hunter, whoever it is I'm hunting with. Most of these guys are good friends of mine now. And of course, you know, the trackers and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, you're not usually off just by yourself, but most of the time it's been simply by happenstance, you know, that we've just happened upon uh, either a poacher's camp or, or ran into a poacher in the field. And yeah, I mean, listen, most of the time these guys are just snare poaching. 
um, I say just, it's it's a it's an outrageously effective form of poaching. They, they put out wire snares by the hundreds. And, you know, the unfortunate part about it is, is snaring is very indiscriminate. You know, poachers don't truly want to catch a lion. I mean, it's not of much value to them generally. But if a lion gets caught in a snare, he's going to die. You know, they're trying to get buffalo and, and gazelles and, you know, whatever it may be. But generally speaking, we've just happened upon them. And on the rare instance when they're carrying a gun, it, yeah, it's gotten, uh, it's gotten a little western in a big hurry. You know, I've actually uh, held a guy at gunpoint. I've seen the, uh, you know, the guys there work them over pretty good to try to get information about where they're, you know, camps and what's going on. And, you know, because, you know, look, the, the locals to the trackers, you got to remember, whenever they're in these areas hunting, generally speaking, it's that's where they live. That's where they're from. You know, I mean, to them, it's their land. And so when these outside poachers are coming in to poach the game, they take it very personally. So it's really the old west. It's the wild west when you catch these guys, and um, you know usually the the pH and you know the clients kind of stay out of it. But uh, you know you, you you see some things like you might have thought you'd see around here at the bar fights, you know, forty years ago. But uh, <laughs> yes. it, it, honestly, it gets a, it gets a little western. But you know, I, I had a picture uh, in my head. It was almost like Tombstone with uh, the guys. They're like, say when. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, but look, obviously these guys know too, and I say these guys, the poachers. You know, they know that you know if they get caught, they're going to suffer some severe penalties, both from the trackers and from the game scout, who is like the game warden that accompanies you on all these hunts. They can face jail time. So you know, they they try to avoid capture, obviously. And yeah, I mean, we've been shot at. Never had anything really bad happen, but I certainly have been close enough to it that I I would prefer to stay away. Okay, so we're going to cut it here on episode 38. You're going to have to stay tuned for episode 39, which will come out in about a week. But I really do hope you enjoyed what you've heard so far. Aaron is solid when it comes to understanding what's going on in Africa. I'm sure you're probably aware of that now. And if you liked this episode, we would really appreciate if you could give us a feedback. If you go to our iTunes account, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are. How you can get to it is go to mybowrush.com forward slash iTunes, and that will take you right to our page. You can leave us a review. Let us know what you think. We'd absolutely love it. But if you could, stay tuned for the next episode for episode 39. I'll see you then. I'm Travis Stowe, your host of the Bowers Podcast. I'm out here.